It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the Fox News Radio studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, thanks so much for listening, everybody. I hope you have a sensational day and are out of the range of this tropical storm slash hurricane. Yesterday, some wild weather. You see some of these tornadoes dropping down in Florida. I know we got stations all over Florida, WOKV. We have Jacksonville, and they got hit with the tornado yesterday. And, of course, the tragedy in Miami. Uh, and we'll hopefully uh, dodge a bullet over in South Carolina, uh, and things will be okay weather-wise. But I cannot tell you things are going to be okay crime-wise because crime across the city, the only commonality we have, almost every major city uh, is experiencing an increase. And this is not really to the delight of President Biden. He wants to talk about how bad law enforcement is. And law enforcement stepped back. And now you got a huge problem on your hand, Mr. President. Check your notes on that. Big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Bagram feels vulnerable. There are also thousands of Taliban prisoners inside. And now that the Americans are gone, the power is cut, and base defenses are disrupted, if the Taliban were able to break them out, it would amass a huge fighting force right on the doorstep of Kabul. Unbelievable. Disaster for all to see. The Afghanistan drawdown is turning into a Taliban handover, making America look like a disloyal ally, to say the least. Biden blames Trump, and for once, the press does not accept it. Why is old Joe willing to lose hard-earned influence and real estate in a region between three of our most staunch enemies? Number two. When we're seeing historic levels of violence, dear God, there's got to be a sense of urgency at the federal level. What more is it going to take? And yet we see people in Congress sitting on their hands and not doing anything. Uh, Now Mayor Lori Lightfoot is saying the federal government's got to help when President Trump offered you help. Crime catastrophe in America. And the Biden administration knows it and knows its polls prove it. The problem is his solution. Sanction guns, not the shooters. Number one. There are legislators, mostly from the Republican Party, who are currently bullying teachers and trying to stop us from teaching kids honest history. Maybe they're just trying to raise the temperature on race relations because of the next election. That is Randy Weingarten, who's done more damage to more kids than anybody in America, educating the U.S. The American way, an impossible concept for the woke left and the teachers union's president as she and they double down on CRT. This is the fight the right must have and must win. So for 26 states, they've introduced legislation or have taken other action to restrict the teaching of critical race theory. Essentially, it's this. It's vilifying this generation of white males and white women. And saying that you've had it too good for too long and you're oppressors by definition. And you're black or you're a minority, you are a victim. And you should demand apologies and you should be aware of how the odds are stacked against you. As I describe it, I challenge anyone to say I'm inaccurate. Let's expand on it. Let's debate it. Because we are for history. We are for Jim Crow and slavery and the civil rights revolution. We're also for our revolution, the War of 1812, standing up to superpowers, breeding freedom around the world and getting better and better each and every year and becoming the economic and military superpower we are. It is a American story. It is a great story, but it is not all great. We get it. But the country is. 
and Randy Weingarten and those minions underneath her, like the Howard Zins of the world, the foundations that exist even after he died, they are the problem. And they don't see, they see that, uh, that Americans who don't have critical race theory in their curriculum are whitewashing history, pun not intended. That's not true. We don't want to make America the villains because we're not. Because if you look around the world, even along the way, nobody has been better. And they now claim Republicans have been bullies. And what a symbol it is. Joe Biden, Jill Biden stand with the teachers' unions who vote for them. And they appeared together yesterday ridiculously wearing masks in a summer school environment. Meanwhile, they're both vaccinated unless they're lying to us. Here's some of her drivel. Cut to. What Trump did and what the right wing has learned from Trump is it's constantly chaos and fear and 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 creating that kind of um, uh, uncertainty. And so now that it's clear that we're going to be able to reopen schools safely in the fall and help kids recover, they have to find something else to create chaos and fear with. Yeah, you could play politics. You should just worry about curriculum. 1.7 million teachers are represented by her second biggest teachers union. That's all about voting. And she's actually getting credit from Jill Biden for heroically opening up schools, which he took two years to do. And she didn't even mention if those kids are going to be allowed to go full time five days a week and without masks. That's key. Here's Jill Biden talking about what she says is great leadership from Randy Weingarten. What a joke. Cut four. All the way back in April of 2020, AFT released a plan to safely reopen schools. That is not true. She didn't open up schools. We found out through a Freedom of Information Act emails going back and forth to the CDC, pushing them not to push educators to get back in the classrooms and students back in the classrooms. We can continue. Organization has been as bold and tenacious about fighting for our nation's students and their families as you are in everything you do. That is absolutely not true. She kept kids out of school, the ones that needed the most in cities that were the most need of education, had the least supervision just because of the nature of the family makeup, many of which didn't have laptops or iPads in order to even zoom in, many of which never showed up and lost a year of school. That didn't matter. Even after the teachers got vaccinated, it still didn't matter. And we'll continue. You never give up on what matters. And I want to especially thank you for how much your work for the AFT has done to get educators and families vaccinated. As an educator, a union member, and first lady, I'm so grateful, Randy, for your leadership. She is a joke. She has been harmful to students. She's about teachers many of which just take their orders from her, many of which chose not to work. A lot of teachers wanted to work, but under the thumb of the union that you're forced to join in order to get a job. You ask these kids, you ask these parents. She deserves zero credit. Whoever loaded that prompter should be sanctioned along with the first lady who pretends to be a doctor. Here's Jonah Goldberg, hardly a Trump supporter. Cut six. We've seen mass exodus of what were once traditional Republican voters, suburbanite, married couples, raising uh, college educated. They've fled the Republican Party to vote for, for Joe Biden. And this seems like one of the very few issues 
that can pull some of them back while also still holding on to the sort of more Trumpified base. It makes sense that Republicans are going after it. Mm -hmm. It's also true that some of them are exaggerating, and it's also true that the, the left is exaggerating. But the core issue about treating people equally is, is the Republicans are on the right side of it, and it's smart politics for them to be on it. It is, and we'll discuss that. I want to get your take. What are you experiencing in your school with your kids? Uh, 1-866-408-7669. What have you been asked to do as a parent or a teacher? Byron York, Cut 7. The teachers unions are continuing their effort to become the most unpopular uh, group in America after a year of showing that they did not want to be in classrooms uh, teaching children. Uh, now they're taking uh, this side on the, on the CRT debate. And besides, Randy Weingarten says the union has a large uh, war chest to file suit against state legislators and localities uh, that ban critical race theory. But those are groups, legislatures, localities, that do have the right, the responsibility to help set school curricula. And controlling what is in school curricula is what local authorities do without lawsuits from the American Federation of Teachers. And by the way, fundamentally, she has said they don't teach CRT in K through 12, but yet she's willing to provide money and legal fees covered uh, as well as lawyers provided to any teacher in those 26 states that have banned critical race theory. So what are you actually supporting? If you're not teaching it, what are you actually doing? Nobody has anything against American history, the good and bad. But they hate twisting genders and making kids more aware of who they are instead of understanding that they're Americans first. They're unmelting the melting pot. And that is not permittable as long as we're here. One eight six six four zero eight seven six six nine. So the other major issue that has the Biden administration on its heels is not going away. They wanted to talk about the evils of law enforcement, how they're reimagining the force, how constantly the squad especially talks about defunding the police. So bad was it, they decided to do something really astounding and audacious. Say it's the Republicans defunding the police. Thankfully, the Washington Post in a column today gave them three Pinocchios. That's a flat-out lie. It's never been said. It's never been done. And you even know that they are, are very pro-Joe Biden, they could not go along with that. Mayor Lori Lightfoot is one of the worst mayors around, the least effective and the most defensive. You bring up anything with her, and she says, you just don't like women, you don't like black women. Like, for example, when she insisted on getting her hair cut at work, Meanwhile, the pandemic had just started and you told everyone not to uh, do both. Excellent. Eric Adams. So far, I love what I hear. He's a 22-year-old uh, former NYPD captain who became a politician. And he's to the left and he ticked off a lot of uh, the Ray Kellys of the world, uh, the Bill Brattons of the world. But I would say out of the bunch, Eric Adams ran on the closest thing to law and order. Here's one of his first interviews. He talked on CBS about the one thing that New Yorkers care most about. And believe it, believe it or not, he got it right. Cut 12. We have abandoned uh, our cities. Uh, what's happening in New York City is taking place in Chicago South Side. It's taking place in California, in Atlanta. You're seeing gun violence, and it's so pervasive. But it's not. It's more than gun violence. If we don't educate, we will incarcerate. 65% of black and brown children in this city every year never reach reaches uh, proficiency. And you're seeing the Democratic Party 
basically they've thrown up their hands and we're continuing to see the same problems in our inner cities. Why is it taking us so long? We're watching these babies die year after year after year and no one seems to care. At least he's nailing the issue. Uh, and, you know, he did come from the inner city, adverse situations, economically uh, challenged from day one. So we'll hear about his story. And, man, I hope he's up for this job. I say it as a, somebody in New York City, of course, but if New York City can get it right, others will follow. And if they actually want to save their party, they will have that attitude. Not Notice he did not vilify the police. He also did not vilify assault weapons. He says these are crimes are being done with handguns. Take that. President Biden. When we come back, your calls. And then if you want to write me, if you're back at work, BrianKillMe.com, just click on comments and it'll go right to my email. And then we'll uh, be able to take calls after talking to Jonathan Turley at 34. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Challenging conventional thought and wisdom. You're with Brian Kilmeade. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. As many of you know from your own life experiences, a life in so-called blue-collar work is something to be proud of. It is very rewarding to work that has impact on your friends, your neighbors, and your family's lives. Great successes can be had in the blue-collar career. There's no degree requirement for achieving comfort, peace, and freedom. While schools cut shop classes and funnel students into colleges, there are plenty of options for hard workers who are ready to take advantage of open positions. Many young people today assume that college is the only way to achieve success in life. That is not true. Let me introduce you to Ken Rusk. Ken spent his younger years digging ditches and working in construction. He never went to college. Instead, he made goals, planned, and worked hard for 30 years. Now Ken is a successful entrepreneur with multiple businesses and revenue streams. In his national best-selling book, Blue Collar Cash, Ken shares his insights from over 30 years of working in blue-collar trades as an entrepreneur, mentor, and life coach. Now he's created a guide made specifically for you and your unique situation. This guide will give you or someone you love the tools you need to start designing the life of their dreams. You can achieve your dreams regardless of your educational background or your past. Go to KenRusk.com path to learn more. That's KenRusk.com path. Information you want, truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. It is just as biased to act like it is normal to see a hundred people shot in Chicago over the weekend, and it's like, okay, that's them, that's how they act. That is racist in its nature. To act like that this kind of behavior is what people expect out of us, which means they don't see us as slow human beings that have children that are going to grow up and be productive, that have grandmothers that should in their last years not have to worry about is a bullet going to fly through the window. So I think the media must be just as concerned, just as dealing with uh, the, the, the sensationalism that we can uh, uh, attribute to something, when we're dealing with this kind of thug mentality that is being excused because that is not the norm in our community, and we must be able to work 
with those that want to work with us to get rid of that element unapologetically. I do not apologize for standing up for George Floyd or for uh, Eric Garner because I think that is right. I think those police broke the law. But I don't apologize for standing up for grandma not living under siege or for a mm -hmm. one-year-old kid killed with a straight bullet in a gang fight that I preached his funeral because that kid had a right to live. And whoever made the gun, got the gun there, and the kid that used the gun need to be held accountable just like a policeman that breaks the law. I, I have never heard him talk like that, ever heard Al Sharpton talk about black-on-black -black crime. He didn't say it, but that's what he said. Uh, about that grandmother doesn't feel safe in the inner city, the, the person who's not safe, and it's uh, bias and racist to say, well, that's just the way they are. Of course it is, but no one says that, by the way. Uh, people just say, well, what are you going to do about it? And if the crime is in the inner city... You're blaming the cops. That's all we ever hear. Well, the cops are too tough or the cops don't go in. Now the cops are just staying away because you told them to stay away and you told them they're the problem. But what Al Sharpton just said, he's got to say more. George Floyd was wrong. He didn't like Aaron Gardner's decision. Uh, he, they uh, both lost their lives. He didn't bring up Michael Brown, but in Ferguson, that's been disproven. We'll go over that. But that, but saying that those are universal happenings that shows that cops are, are essentially – uh, uh, always wrong, and, that, and that's an example of what's happening on a daily basis as opposed to what is really happening on a daily basis, 100 shot. You know that two people died last night, and I think there was 19 shootings in Chicago. One night. One night. Is that still the holiday traffic? You're still blaming on that? So there were Democrats, on a much lesser note, much less important, granted, on pure politics, are saying, uh-oh, we want to talk about how police were bad. We want to talk about how reimagining police is important. We want to talk about how we're going to empower minorities who have been oppressed by white people and law enforcement for generations. And along the way, something happened. Crime is up 700 percent in places like Portland, Oregon. Up Shootings are up 36 percent in New York, uh, huge in Atlanta, up in Orlando, up in places like uh, Philadelphia. Los Angeles up 22%. And we know what's happening in New York. We know too much about what's happening in New York. So along the way, this became a major problem. And what is Joe Biden going to do about it? Jonathan Swan on a special report last night, Cut 22. Crime is the last thing that the Biden uh, White House wants to be talking about. The only context in which they wanted to be talking about crime in Biden's first year as president was in the context of criminal justice reform and, you know, increased accountability for police officers. The homicide rates that are increasing in cities across the country have forced this issue onto their plate. What I've learned from my reporting is that there are several Democrats who are quite influential in the party, who are close to the White House, who've been urging them actually for months uh, that they need to get in front of this issue, that this issue is salient with voters. And in fact, many believe who, who analyze the polling that the defund the police issue um, helped Republicans pick up seats in the House in, in the 2020 elections. It almost gave them the Senate back when they were favored to lose it in places like Iowa and Maine. Uh, Afghanistan, the other big issue, President Biden to speak on Afghanistan today, the Taliban gaining... Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. 
His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Huge provinces and a lot of real estate. It is panic time in Afghanistan, going a lot quicker than they ever imagined, but they should have seen this coming. John Kirby went out with Neil Cavuto yesterday. He's the Pentagon press secretary. He's also an admiral. Cut 24. We are all concerned about the security situation on the ground. Neil, there's no question about that, which is all the more reason why we continue to push for a negotiated, peaceful political settlement to this war. That's really the way forward here. We've said for a long time uh, a military solution is not going to be in the best interest of the Afghan people uh, or, or, quite frankly, the region. We're still pushing. We still believe in the security situation, I think, augurs for and argues for uh, a peaceful, negotiated solution here. Well, see, uh, I think that a peaceful negotiated solution needs this thing called Taliban at the table. They have not done it. The Trump deal had them at least coming to the table, and if they weren't going to do that, it was going to halt things. And as I spoke to uh, Senator Lindsey Graham before, he really thought as though that Donald Trump did not want this to be Saigon 2 and wouldn't have allowed this to happen. Joe Biden's about to have Saigon 2 on his watch. You know, look to blame Trump. The one policy he says he couldn't reverse. Really? Jonathan Turley next. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. We're asking the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Florida to order an immediate halt to social media companies' illegal, shameful censorship of the American people, and that's exactly what they are doing. We're demanding an end to the shadow banning, a stop to the silencing, and a stop to the blacklisting, banishing, and canceling that you know so well. Our case will prove this censorship is unlawful, it's unconstitutional, and it's completely un-American. We all know that. We all know that. And that is the President of the United States with a press conference yesterday pushing back on his outright social media ban where rivals got together and agreed on one thing after January 6th, and they were leaning towards that anyway with a series of suspensions. Donald Trump is out. It concerned everyone from Angela Merkel to the president of Mexico. They thought if they could do that to President Trump, they could do it to anyone. Really? Is that the case? Jonathan Turley's with us, law professor at GW uh, and Fox News contributor. Jonathan, welcome back. Thank you. Do you think this is, from what you can tell so far, do you think the president is right to sue? Oh, I think he's right uh, to seek legal action. There's no question that Twitter is... And these other companies are engaging in extensive programs of censorship. It's also clear in my view that these programs are based on clear political bias. They take sides on scientific political issues and ban people uh, who want to talk about, you know, Hunter Biden's laptop or the origins of uh, the COVID virus. Uh, So there is not only censorship, but biased uh, censorship. Uh, so there's no question there's injury here. The, the problem is the cause of action. I think that the odds are stacked heavily against prevailing in the case. 
they have what they have to do is they have to find a bridge over a very broad river um, because this is a private company and private companies have a right to engage in censorship even when they're demonstrably wrong as is the case with twitter and other companies so what they have to do is to say yeah they're private companies but they're really acting in cahoots essentially with the government that you have all these members of congress who have threatened these companies you better engage in more uh, censorship. He, Senator Blumenthal has been a, a nonstop, uh, you know, un, you know, record calling for censorship. So was many of his colleagues. Uh, they they warned these executives, even when they were apologizing for the uh, laptop uh, censorship. Uh, they proceeded immediately after that apology in a hearing to say, "You better not be backsliding. We want more censorship." So the argument is, well. They're really acting as uh, at, at the instructions of the government, and that makes this a public act. That's not a frivolous argument. It's just a really hard argument to make for a court. Uh, so you'd have to show a collusion on top of exclusion. So you're excluding Donald Trump because of his point of view, show that, uh, and his political standing. And then you got to show that they're in cahoots. Yeah, I mean, the linkage they're showing is that Congress gives Twitter, for example, immunity under Section 230, while at the same time saying we might pull that immunity unless you do what Senator Blumenthal calls robust content modification, which is the Democratic Orwellian term for censorship. And that nexus is there. The question is whether legally a court will find that's enough. My guess is they probably will not. But it's a very difficult, novel case. Uh, It's not that there's not an injury here. It's just being able to establish that cause of action. Very interesting. Uh, Where would you file that? Where do you file that? And when do you expect to have that heard? Well, you file it in the federal court. They have their choice of where they want to do it because uh, there's a number of courts that would have jurisdiction. Uh, So, you know, they can try to do a little bit of form shopping and finding a more conservative circuit. Uh, But I think even in conservative circuits, these judges are likely to to be skeptical. It's not that they don't agree with uh, necessarily with some of the underlying objections. It's just that they, we've never had a court make this type of, of bridge uh, to, to get to the cause of action like this. Uh, so we'll see where they file it. Um, it could go to the Supreme Court. But once again, the Supreme Court itself may have trouble with this. You know, these, these are justices who have defended corporate speech uh, and the right of corporations to speak politically and to, and, and to limit speech. I want you to hear part of the strategy. John Cole is uh, one of the attorneys filing the suit for Donald Trump. Cut 43. The Supreme Court over the years has defined what makes one a government actor. By encouraging is one of the prongs of it. And they did that when they gave these companies immunity. They've encouraged them by giving them immunity to do things that Congress can't do themselves. Congress can't censor you. Also, by coercion, when all those Democratic senators kept threatening these companies, if you don't do what we say and ban Trump, censor Trump, censor their definition of misinformation or hate speech, we will tear you apart. 
we might be take away your immunity. Does that shed any light on what he's going to do? And also they talk about shadow banning, part of the subtleties where you repress people while you don't ban people. You could also show, too, the little bias when it comes to criticism of the Chinese president. That person who criticized the Chinese president was suspended briefly on Twitter. I mean, are all those things, can that matter? They can matter. First of all, John Cole is an absolutely outstanding lawyer. I know him well. And I should I should disclose that he called me about this lawsuit early on about how uh, the issues that might arise. And we talked about some of these underlying cases. The the point is a good one. Uh, but I think even John recognizes that um, he's he's, he's going to have to really stretch out the existing precedent to make this type of nexus. Um, but you're also right, uh, Brian, about, you know, the record here doesn't have to have any embellishment. Twitter, for example, has made an, a, a record against itself that all but the most extreme voices uh, would recognize. I mean, remember, Twitter admitted that it was censoring critics of the Indian government. So people that were – India was having mass death due to the negligence of its government in dealing with COVID. And Twitter was censoring people who were trying to raise those issues, literally trying to save lives in India by pointing out failures of the government. So while Twitter is, is silencing people that are questioning aspects of COVID uh, opposed to the views of people like Fauci – um, it, it was actually censoring people, including doctors, who were trying to actually save lives by identifying where the government was failing to respond to the pandemic. So Twitter has made an overwhelming case against itself. The only question is the cause of action. Right. Cause of action and what happens. And I'm wondering if this gets close. I, I guess if they have endless resources. Do they get a settlement? Do they come back and say, listen, you have some good points. I really don't want to get rid of this. Uh, I really don't want to change your status. We'll put you back online, Mr. President. I would be surprised because Twitter went all in with censorship. And more importantly, Democratic members have been saying you better not back down. I think Twitter wrote off conservatives. Uh, They made that decision years ago that they would become a sort of liberal platform. And they're comfortable with that. So I wouldn't necessarily expect uh, any type of, of compromise. They're all in. Uh, they, you know, and the other thing is that Twitter is really disingenuous. You know, they constantly talk about being transparent. They're one of the least transparent companies on earth. I mean, they, in that case you just pointed out, involving the academic who mocked the Chinese government and was flagged, they refused to respond to her. So she couldn't get any response until one reporter picked up the issue and ran with it. Then Twitter responds. If there's if there's the publicity growing, they'll respond. But they couldn't give a damn about this academic, about her, you know, trying to get some explanation. And part of it is that a lot of this is now automatic. So the Chinese can have um, its people, the government can have its people flood Twitter with objections. And then there's an automatic program that will flag it. Well, lots of groups do this, right, to cancel people. They just flood Twitter with objections, knowing that people will get flagged. Wow. 
Well, I want to also, so we'll see where that goes. The president certainly got some attention on that. I also don't think he could run for election without social media. I think that's just a fact. Uh, I also want to bring up Randy Weingarten, uh, this uh, union head that thinks it's a great idea to keep the kids who need it most out of school and pretend that she's looking out for their welfare. She also came out and said, I, we do not teach critical race theory in K-12. through And then she came out and said this. Mark my words. Our union will defend any member who gets in trouble for teaching honest history. We have a legal defense fund ready to go, and we are preparing for litigation as we speak. Teaching the truth is not radical or wrong. Distorting history and threatening educators for teaching the truth is what is truly radical and wrong. Right. She's doing the Joe Biden whisper thing, not effective for him or her. But, uh, Jonathan, what do you think about this, a legal defense fund to defend a program she says she's not teaching? Yeah. The other thing is how disingenuous a statement was. You know, Weingarten makes it sound like until she showed up, schools were still teaching the Civil War as the war of northern aggression. I mean, they, the, none of these parents are objecting to the teaching of slavery segregation, the civil rights movement, all of that has been taught for years and rather robustly. If you look at the textbooks used by students, including my own children, they have long chapters that really go into into considerable depth, yep. and that's fine, and parents have never objected to that. What they're objecting to is the identity politics stuff of teachers telling students, even in uh, elementary school, about their white privilege and white dominance and uh, their role in, in preserving racism. That's what they're objecting to. And instead, Weingarten is, in, is engaging on a really dishonest level. I mean, she's saying, oh, critical race theory is just something taught in law school. That's right. Critical race theory is taught in law school. But what is being taught um, in some of the lessons plans that parents are objecting to are components of critical race theory. That is, this is the type of, you know, you know, arguments of privilege, white dominance that came out of this uh, movement. So whatever you call it, what Weingart does want to do is to deal with the specific objections of parents. And instead, she's just misrepresenting what they're saying. Now, in terms of litigation, it's really hard to fire any teacher who's unionized. I mean, it, uh, it takes literally years yeah. in the grievance process. So, yeah, I mean, obviously they're going to defend uh, these teachers, uh, but there's going to be other fights going on as well. You have this teacher in Virginia who won on the trial court level when he objected in a school board meeting uh, to being required to use the pronouns according to the new rule. I talked to them. I talked to to him today. The gym teacher got reinstated. Right. Well, that rule also requires students to use these pronouns, that could lead to litigation. I mean, there's serious religious and free speech issues when you start to tell students that they have to refer to each other in particular ways. But the school board is proceeding with an appeal in that case trying to fire this teacher. I hear you. I'm very curious. 26 states have banned the teaching of critical race theory, and she says she wants to take, uh, she wants to introduce this curriculum in those 26 states, and we'll back them up with union dues and pay for their attorneys. Fantastic. Is that what you really want your union doing? Uh, But it's fully backed by Joe Biden. 
Yeah, and she, I got to tell you, she's destroying this union. She's harming teachers. She has made the union into an offshoot of politics, and it really hurts all of us in education because, you know, teachers were held to great esteem because we were we were viewed as, as basically teaching our subjects. Even if we were liberal, people often objected to teachers being liberal. But until recently, teachers were not viewed as being yeah. activists in overall. This union is all in on that type of activism. Jonathan Turley, thanks so much. I cannot wait to get the Thank bill you. for this segment. Uh, two rich <laughs> topics, and yeah, but, we're, but we do have resources to pay for it. So we'll, good. Good. the check will clear. Jonathan, where I'll Venmo you. <laughs> Jonathan Turley, thank you. Uh, when we come back, I'll take your calls and finish up this hour. Man, uh, it's been great. Don't move. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. A talk show that's real. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. The last time energy the economy grew at this rate was in 1984, and Ronald Reagan was telling us it was an American morning. This is going to be an American century. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. I know that's a boring speech, but it's an important speech. Do you believe he just said that? I know that's a boring speech, but it's an important speech. So we went to a... Uh, a red area part of Illinois in order to sell bipartisan infrastructure. I'm not, uh, I don't think that's necessarily a bad move. The problem is no one's going to forget the fact that right after your bipartisan infrastructure plan, you have told everybody I'm going to go pass another plan that has no, that Republicans, everything the Republicans negotiated out will be in. That's the human infrastructure element of this. But it's also a situation where we know these states, there's a big story today in the New York Times. Uh, that said states struggle and rush to spend $350 billion of pandemic money. They don't need it. They didn't. Every state would love extra money to build better roads. Better bridges. It was an emergency. We're going into debt to give this money to these states. Now you're going to come out and say, okay, now I got one point. Now I got $1 trillion. Now that's going to be more money to the states. And then you're going to come out and try to jam $1.4 trillion, if you can get Joe Manchin, on pure, pure reconciliation. While everything that we buy, from when we shop to the, the extension we want to put on our house when it comes to lumber, to buying a used car or a new car, to buying gas, everything has gone up and inflation has raised all prices 5% and no sign of going down, only going up. So he's got some bad indicators. He loves to talk about, and I would too, the 850,000 jobs that he put out. Yeah, from last month. Technically, he gets credit for that because we're going back to work, not creating jobs, going back to those jobs. Here's a little more from uh, Joe Biden's speech yesterday. Cut 29. One of the reasons why we were leading country in the world for so long and still on the edges is because... We're the first nation, industrial nation in the world to require, to allow 12 years of free education back at the turn of the 20th century. But everybody's caught up. And so the fact of the matter is, we've decided, I've decided we should have a minimum of 14 years of education. 
Any nation that out-educates us is going to out-compete us. That's why I want to guarantee an additional four years of public education for every person in America, starting with providing two years of universal, high-quality preschool for three- and four-year-olds. And then I want to add two years of free community college for everyone. Not bad. Free everything. Free preschool. It's got to be great. Nice gray walls there. And then free junior college. Great. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for listening. I'm coming to you from New York, heard around the country, heard around the world. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. Amongst our guests this hour, Congressman Jeff Fortenberry. He's out of Nebraska, House Appropriations Committee. We're going to be talking about this bipartisan bill. Will they sign it? What about the next one coming down the pike? What about the $350 billion kicking around from New York uh, state to state? Uh, not New York, around the country from state to state. Uh, they said they're looking to spend it as quick as possible. Monday, we don't have money, uh, money that it doesn't seem like these states really need. Uh, it is uh, hel- helping with the surplus in the case of California and in New York. Unbelievably, but true. Uh, the other big story, of course, is crime in America, what's happening in Afghanistan on down. We'll discuss it all. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Bagram feels vulnerable. There are also thousands of Taliban prisoners inside. And now that the Americans are gone, the power is cut, and base defenses are disrupted, if the Taliban were able to break them out, it would amass a huge fighting force right on the doorstep of Kabul. It's so embarrassing. Disaster for all to see. The Afghanistan drawdown is turning into a Taliban handover, making America look like a disloyal ally, to say the least. Biden blames Trump for the once. Uh, uh, for once, the press does not accept it. I'm going to give you the exchange, which I find heartening. Why is old, old Joe willing to lose hard-earned influence and real estate amongst our enemies, Iran, China, and Russia? Why does that make sense? Number two. When we're seeing historic levels of violence, dear God, there's got to be a sense of urgency at the federal level. What more is it going to take? And yet we see people in Congress sitting on their hands and not doing anything. You stop it yourself. You got yourself your own cops, your own city. You have your own law enforcement. You want Congress to do what? Crime catastrophe in America. That's Mayor Lori Lightfoot of Chicago. And the Biden administration knows it, and it knows the polls prove it. The problem is the solution. Sanction guns, not the shooters. Number one. There are legislators, mostly from the Republican Party, who are currently bullying teachers and trying to stop us from teaching kids honest history. Maybe they're just trying to raise the temperature on race relations because of the next election. Yeah, right. Uh, Randy Weingarten, just this terrible union leader of 1.7 million teachers educating America the American way, an impossible concept for the woke left and the teachers union president you just heard. Uh, She wants to double down on critical race theory, which, by the way, she says she's not teaching. This is a fight the right must have and must win. Uh, So she has had a conference over the last two days with a $1.7 million constituency, but virtual because it's too dangerous 
Tell that to 53,000 that gathered at Wembley Stadium or the 20,000 in Tampa to watch the Lightning get two straight Stanley Cups. But no, we can't have teachers in the same room, all of which are vaccinated, but I digress. Randy Weingarten continues to blame everybody except her and get false praise for keeping schools closed when she should have been trying to keep them open, caring more about, I don't know, keeping teachers at home and students just have their education, let's say, hamstrung to be kind because they're forced, in many cases, kids that need it most, the most vulnerable, who have the least, are forced to learn from home. Also, times in which they wouldn't even put on the computer should they have them. But believe it or not, Jill Biden showing a sanctity and unity with Randy Weingarten, who's under pressure to stop critical race theory and stop rewriting American history to make us look like a uh, racist society where whites only gain. Jill Biden, listen to this and try not to laugh. Cut for it's all the way back in April of 2020, AFT released a plan to safely reopen schools. And since then, this organization has been as bold and tenacious about fighting for our nation's students and their families. That is flat out wrong. We have seen the uh, we have seen the FOIA requests, and it shows the interaction between the CDC and the teachers' union, Randy Weingarten in particular, advising the CDC what to say about opening up schools. First, they said they should open up schools. Then the Jen Psaki says the CDC director only speaks for herself. And then Randy Weingarten writes and talks about their problems. And then they decide to recommend you keep schools closed. When it came out and said you no longer need six feet apart, it's really three feet apart, they pushed back on that. She said in 2020 they pushed to open. That is wrong. They didn't even open in 2021 until the last month. And then it was only part-time in many, many cities. More. As you are in everything you do, you never give up on what matters. And I want to especially thank you for how much your work for the AFT has done to get educators and families vaccinated. And this woman comes out and says the GOP is bullying teachers on race and are pushing back against honest history. We know that's not true. We know that's not close to true because you know in your own schooling you don't need to see a survey or talk to your kids. You know that you learned about Jim Crow. You know you learned about the Civil War. You know you learned about segregation. You know you learned about slavery. And you watched it be whittled away into the point where America has never been more fair or level. We could always make strides. The great thing about us, we always do. And we innovate along the way, more and more people breaking out. No guaranteed success, but an opportunity for success. So critical race theory It vilifies one race, white people, especially males. Do you think that's healthy on surface? Do you want your kid coming home if he's black or Hispanic or Asian and thinking, life is stacked against me? We are oppressed. And the oppressors we hate, of course, by nature and definition, white people. Do you want to create resentment and actually say that's pro-American? If I'm China, I'm loving this. Russia, Iran, loving this. Our enemies relish this because America is being destroyed on the inside. I thought it was bad in colleges. The fact that it's in schools and we know about it. We've seen these Board of Education recalls. taking place because parents are standing up and speaking out and not all white parents, black parents. If I'm an African-American parent, I don't want my kid coming home and saying, wow, we've been victimized. Really? 
Tell me when being victimized has ever helped, helped anybody, whether it's at the workplace or whether it's home or in society, to feel like a victim. Then you feel like a, a everyday life's against you. You can't succeed, and it's not your fault. You have no control. But that didn't stop CNN from scolding those who want to bring logic to education. Cut five. So, Ellie, do these vocal opponents of critical race theory actually understand fully what it is? No. And why should they? It's an academic theory mostly taught at the grad student level. But what they think it means is teaching white kids that all white people are bad and racist. And so, of course, they're afraid of that. Critical race theory is not being taught in schools. Can it influence the way that some teachers teach? Uh, Yeah, but that's a good thing, right? Because race and racism is literally the building box of this country. So how can you not talk about it? Are you teaching children to hate America? No, I'm teaching children to question America. And that's what makes a good patriot. Yeah, fantastic. America is built on racism. Fantastic. What could be wrong about that? How could a kid possibly misinterpret that great message? No, I'm teaching children to question America. Question what? What would you like to question? The Declaration of Independence or the Constitution? Do you want to question the winning World War II or World War I? You tell me. Do you want to question pushing back against the war on terror? Please line up. Fantastic. Byron York weighed in on the critical race theory, which on one hand they're saying they're not teaching, but when you ask them, music aside, they're teaching. Cut seven. The teachers unions are continuing their effort to become the most unpopular uh, group in America after a year of showing that they did not want to be in classrooms uh, teaching children. Uh, now they're taking uh, this side on the on the CRT debate. And besides, Randy Weingarten says the union has a large uh, war chest to file suit against state legislators and localities uh, that ban critical race theory. But those are groups, legislatures, localities, that do have the right, the responsibility to help set school curricula. And controlling what is in school curricula is what local authorities do without lawsuits from the American Federation of Teachers. So that was Byron York taking the intellectual approach to the detrimental political ramifications of doing this. Jonah Goldberg talked about that as well. But I also want to talk about what's happening over the last two days and why this is so front and center. Because representing the 1.7 million teachers is Randy Weingarten. And she's addressing them. We imagine their laptops are on. We don't know if they're at the beach, feet in the sand. We're not sure if that's a country music song. It probably is. But they don't have to be there because it's too dangerous to be all those teachers in one. We might have little think tanks and be able to break out into productive, um, um, uh, productive, uh, uh, productive conversations. So in there, there was some guest speakers, including uh, radical, uh, uh, radical speaker Ibrahim Kendi. He was asked uh, to go down and speak to the teachers about what there should be in their curriculum and what they're up against. Raymond Arroyo reported on that with Laura Ingram last night. We live in a dangerously racist society. There, there are racist ideas that are swirling around that are teaching darker-skinned kids that there's something wrong with them because of the color of their skin. There there are ideas that are swirling around teaching uh, white kids that there's something right about them because of the color of their skin. I mean, what do you say to people like that? I mean, it is totally ass-backwards. I mean, what are you talking about? You sitting there in school and they're saying to black kids, there's something wrong with you? I mean, it's... 
if if that's your thought, you, you're free to speak it. Why would that person be a guest speaker in school? Two teachers to jam that down their throats. And what choice do they have? They want to teach in a union district. That's what you got to do. They should be about if you want to get teachers raises, additional benefits. That's what unions are for. But now you talk about keeping schools closed, pushing past the CDC, using influence with politicians to get what you want. And now you're going to start shaping young minds the way you want them, the way Democrats prefer them. Where is Senator Schumer standing up and saying that's anti-America? Where are the so-called moderates like Joe Manchin saying I'm not comfortable with this? That would make it a blur. No longer make it a Republican or Democrat issue, make it an American issue. But right now it's very simple. The other thing I want to talk about, and I'll take your calls on, is crime in America. Some stats I want to share with you. Portland, uh, homicides up 500 and 33% year-to-date, 41% rise in Minneapolis. I actually thought that was higher. In New York, 12% because they such had a horrendous 2020. Los Angeles, murder, uh, homicides are up 111%. Chicago continues to lead the nation, barely ticked up, but it's still horrendous. There were 100 shootings over the weekend. Atlanta up 45%. So that's where crime is in America, and it is terrible for the sitting party, the sitting White House. For Joe Biden, who wanted to talk about police reform, who wanted to talk about the errors and the errors of law enforcement and how biased it is when it comes to um, uh, criminal justice reform. And we're going to straighten that out. Not when everyone's getting shot. Not when Marine tourists are getting shot in the back and caught in the crossfire. Not when a 21-year-old intern on a train is shot randomly because he's caught in between a gang gang fight in the middle of Chicago. That's not going to happen. This is a major story. And one of the people that's picked up how bad this is politically, and I know what you're saying, political politics should care, should matter least. But if you want to know why the Biden administration is beginning to speak out and better strategize quick, and there's a better hair on fire attitude behind closed doors, Jonathan Swan lines it up, cut 22. He's with Axios. Crime is the last thing that the Biden uh, White House wants to be talking about. The only context in which they wanted to be talking about crime in Biden's first year as president was in the context of criminal justice reform and, you know, increased accountability for police officers. The homicide rates that are increasing in cities across the country have forced this issue onto their plate. What I've learned from my reporting is that there are several Democrats who are quite influential in the party, who are close to the White House, who've been urging them actually for months uh, that they need to get in front of this issue, that this issue is salient with voters. And in fact, many believe who who analyze the polling that the defund the police issue um, helped Republicans pick up seats in the House in, in the 2020 elections. Many believe, totally believe what the Democrats are so desperate to do, and they got 36 percent approval rating when it comes to crime and punishment in America. That's according to Joe Biden. Jen Psaki and company started to say Republicans were defunding the police because they didn't back the one point nine trillion dollar stimulus bill and was a joke. Even The Washington Post gave it three Pinocchios. Not true. Republicans have never been for defunding the police on their worst day ever. And and just so you know. The police, the retired, and their families know it. And you got about 800,000 active police officers right now, and so many retired, and so many related. They know who respects them and who doesn't. You're listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. When we come back, I'll take your calls, 1-866-408-7669. Or if you want to write, briankilmeade.com. Don't move. Getting past all the rhetoric, it's Brian Kilmeade. 
New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. If you look at New York City's situation in particular, everything was going well until 2018. State prison population down 40%, bikers down over 60%, homicides down 90%, overall crime down 80%. Then the legislature in Albany, and to a lesser extent the city council, well-intended criminal justice reform, including bail reform. 2019, it all blew up. Starting in 2019, a year before the coronavirus and its influence, New York began to experience increased shootings, violence, and crime of all categories. So this was one that was the direct result of well-intended efforts that just went too far too fast. Uh, that is Bill Bratton. He is an esteemed police commissioner in New York, uh, as well twice, as well as Los Angeles. And he talked about he doesn't need to look up that history, look up the stats. He lived it. And he watched everything go to hell. And it's not really a indictment of Dermot McShay here in uh, Dermot Shea here in New York. It is about the legislatures. And I think you'll find the same thing in Chicago, in Los Angeles, and in Philadelphia. In Philadelphia, they can't get cops. Before the pandemic, they actually came here to try to recruit New Yorkers to come down to Philadelphia to be cops because there was so much competition to be an NYPD officer, let alone in Nassau and Suffolk County on Long Island. We're actually in Nassau County. Uh, do you know? Uh, do you know crime has dropped ten percent? So they've managed to buck the trend. So what is going on? And we know a lot of it is black on black crime. They want to blame the cops, which is probably the only supervision they get. Period, because of some of the adverse family conditions through no fault of these kids' own. They grow up uh, almost on their own in some cases. I never heard Al Sharpton say anything like this before, but this is what he said yesterday. Buckle up, cut twenty. It is just as biased to act like it is normal to see 100 people shot in Chicago over the weekend. And it's like, okay, that's them. That's how they act. That is racist in its nature to act like that. This kind of behavior is what people expect out of us, which means they don't see us as full human beings that have children that are going to grow up and be productive that have grandmothers that should in their last years not have to worry about is a bullet going to fly through the window. That is uh, Al Sharpton not blaming white people or cops for something. So that is amazing. In Chicago, which was you referring to, uh, at least 100 people were shot over the weekend. 11 children were shot over the weekend. What did they do? They just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. No one's targeting them, but there's so much shooting going on. That's what's happening. And it's handguns, not banned assault weapons that they want to ban. And they're not coming from Chicago, they say. You go figure. We talk about the, the assassination in Haiti and in Afghanistan with Congressman Jeff Fortenberry in a matter of moments. With Fox News Podcasts Plus, you can enjoy all your favorite Fox News Podcasts without commercials. Subscribe now at foxnewspodcasts.com. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. 
I don't have additional details about the actual crime itself. It's horrific, and you heard the president condemn this earlier today. We certainly extend our condolences uh, to all the Haitian people uh, in this particular situation, and certainly uh, to the First Lady of, of Haiti, who you mentioned uh, is going to get some uh, medical care. Uh, and we stand by uh, to continue to support the Haitian people as we have, uh, but I don't have any additional information about this horrific crime. So that is uh, Admiral Kirby, who's spokesperson for the State Department, uh, trying to fit five find out uh, who murdered uh, the president of Haiti, who, by the way, it looks like the assailants pretended to be uh, U.S. agents. Uh, they weren't. Uh, Congressman Jeff Fortenberry uh, is really has Haiti under his auspices. House Appropriations Committee is, is another one of his committees that he's involved with. And, of course, he's no stranger to KLIN uh, listeners and KOIL listeners, COIL listeners over in Nebraska. Congressman, welcome back. What could you tell us about this assassination? Uh, well, thank you, Brian. Uh, it's shocking. It's stunning. Um, I've met with President Moyes a, f- a few years back. I've been to Haiti several times. It's an important part of our foreign affairs considerations. Um, he was on the uh, road of some types of reforms. There were questions about um, at the extension of his power and what he was doing in that regard. Uh, there was some consideration that criminality and gangs and business relationships with criminality and gangs, people that he was trying to perhaps uh, take on and reform, um, that there, there was an animus there. But we just don't know the real reasons behind this, the full reasons. But in reality, Haiti it just can't seem to escape the structural poverty, natural disasters, and this explosive cycle of violence that has racked that country since its beginning. It's really heart-wrenching. It really is, and considering the Dominican Republic is the other side of it, and they're able to get by and do quite well, it knows the potential is there, right? It's a country with huge potential, and yet there's so many setbacks. It's a country of real contradictions, if you will. Uh, there's, a, there's a real pride of culture and a, and a notion of nationalism that's very, very healthy. And yet structural poverty, crime, violence, corruption, uh, instability in governance, uh, foreign manipulation, all of these things have led to the conditions that we have. But it, it, it needs to be noted as well that it, it really is amazing to me the number of church groups and youth groups throughout America have relationships with churches and youth groups in Haiti. So there's a deeper issue here other than just it being a strategic partner in our neighborhood, uh, a recipient of charitable impulse of American aid. There's lots of relationships between Americans and Haitians. Well, that's true. Actually, the First Lady of Haiti is uh, struggling for her life. She was hit. uh, The kids, uh, the son, I guess, was okay. Uh, So we'll see what happens there. Is it true that the assailants pretended to be U.S. agents? Uh, I'm reading what you're reading in that regard. I did speak to our ambassador last night, uh, who I have ongoing dialogue with about the country. Um, I, I, we just don't have any additional information. It, it seems to be correct that they posed. I, I did listen to that one video that they posed as DEA agents. But where they're coming from, I don't have any additional information. So just uh, another part of the thing, just looking at your Twitter feed, you talk about China and now there's movement. I didn't even know China's able to buy farmland in America. What are you guys doing in the House and the Senate to stop that? doesn't seem like a healthy thing to be our number one enemy and adversary and rival to be able to buy, uh, uh, buy up our farmland that's feeding the country. I'm really happy you raised this. I'm the what's called the ranking member of the Agricultural Subcommittee on Appropriations. This was an amendment that came up a few uh, last week, actually, to prohibit the Chinese government from owning farmland in America. 
And there was a little bit of debate that went back and forth on it. We actually passed the amendment. But I posed the question, uh, could an American farmer go buy farmland in China? Could an American corporation buy farmland in China? Could the U.S. government buy farmland? I don't know, but I guess the probability of that is as close to zero as possible. We have very unequal systems and and an unfair trading regime that has uh, developed between China and America. They have lax labor standards. They have lax environmental standards. The lust, the infectious lust for profiteering by multinational companies shifted our manufacturing there. They make the stuff. We buy the stuff. They have our cash. We run up debt. They buy the debt. It's a very dysfunctional marriage that we have. And frankly, one way out of this is that everybody just looks on the label and starts buying made in the USA. That's the best thing that I can recommend. True, Congressman. But it's also true that we don't make much stuff here because most of our businesses thrive because we're able to manufacture cheap and, and still import it and still have cheaper prices. We have to do something on the manufacturing level to incentivize things being built here, whether it's getting additional workers, skilled workers, or, or make it more affordable. I don't know if that's possible. Do you? Uh, it, it, it does need a decided consensus and a concerted effort, a national type of effort in that regard. I'll give you a small example. I had to, one of my kids has a car with 200,000 miles on it. We pushed the car, tires as far as they could go. I went to push uh, to buy some new tires. The Chinese tires were $470. The American tires were 580 uh, so for most people, that's that's a big gap. Huge. I did buy the American tires. I bought the American tire. But why is that a gap? Well, the the you know the, the economic libertarian type of mindset would be well they manufacture more uh, more efficiently. Well, again, there's different sets of standards. If you live in Beijing, it takes five years off your life because the pollution is so bad. We have environmental standards here. We have labor standards here. We don't repress religion here. We don't repress religious minorities here. There are very different systems here, and we want to ignore that for the sake of cheap goods. It's hollowing out America, and it has to stop. Absolutely, and I can see if we could just educate the country, the patriotic, uh, the patriotic fiber in our, our bodies would do that and bring people in the right direction without saying Democrat or Republican. Uh, Congressman Jeff Fortenberry is our guest. Congressman, I, I'm just really concerned. Many people are tired of this war in Afghanistan. Well, that's fine. Does anybody want this outcome that we're seeing right now? a basic handover to Islamic fundamentalists when an outpost that we spent $87 billion on, we handed over uh, to the uh, to the Afghan forces with hours notice. It was looted last night. So here's John Kirby on the situation on the ground. Cut 24. We're all concerned about the security situation on the ground. Neil, there's no question about that, which is all the more reason why we continue to push for a negotiated, peaceful political settlement to this war. That's really the way forward here. We've said for a long time uh, a military solution is not going to be in the best interest of the Afghan people. I I mean, that's just a waste of time. The admiral knows it. They're not speaking. They're winning. The Taliban is just taking up uh, the real estate, and it's going to be within six months they take Kabul. Are we okay with that? I'm highly conflicted, I'm sure, as you are, as sure as most policy members are. Uh, we can't continue in endless wars yet to think that we're going to negotiate with people who are going to outright lie to you um, is uh, naive and destructive. Um, if you look at the circumstances in Iraq, it might provide a better model, but I think we're past that. Uh, we basically withdrew but created a residual force strength there that's very quiet. 
aggressively trained the Iraqi military. They took on ISIS. They defeated ISIS. We were in the background providing leadership and logistical and supply support, but it worked. So that country is, I'm hoping, continues to turn the corner and develops stability, a healthy sense of nationalism, a pluralistic character that used to exist there, and then that can continue to help Iraq enter into the um, uh, community of responsible nations in much better shape. In Afghanistan, what, what a horrible conflict because of the reasons that you just said. We can't stay there forever, but to watch it crumble after all the lives that have been lost, plus the billions that have been spent, um, it, it, it's heart-wrenching. Uh, the country is obviously going to probably get divided up and maybe revert back to where it was with some type of northern, northern alliance that might be a more amenable uh, to alliances with us and others. We do have the capability if a terrorist type of threat is going to possibly come from there to hit us like it did in 9-11 to go in there surgically. Uh, that's the best I can tell you, Brian. Congressman, uh, the, the one thing, the nothing you said was inaccurate, but I also think the mindset could be different. I see a base in between Iran, China, and Russia while keeping an eye on ISIS and al-Qaeda and the Afghanistan government gradually being uh, defunded to a point where they can stand up on their own. We leave enough contractors in there to help use their air force and repair their air force that we built and gave to them. But right now we pulled everybody out immediately. The way we dismount has everything to do with our national interest. I'm not talking about an endless war because only two people have lost their lives in two years. We've lost more in domestic military accidents at home. Uh, yeah, and there it is, the conflict and the reason I gave you the Iraq example. Residual force strength pushes the Afghans out front, provides logistical and air support as well as leadership so that there can be some possibility of them emerging stronger. That would be the better option. Absolutely. Uh, here's the other thing. We've got about 9,000 people that have helped us in the past. Cut 26. So Michael we have Walsh. to send our special operators back in uh, to take care of this problem, like we did when Obama pulled out of Iraq too soon and it led to the rise of ISIS. The difference in Afghanistan is they're going to have no bases. Uh, we have no bases in the region, and they're going to have no local allies. Who yeah. would trust us again? Who would stand with us again? Uh, after they've been abandoned. And Dana, you know my own personal story uh, that I had a, uh, I had one of my interpreters that was found by the Taliban with the documentation he needed to prove that yeah. he worked with America. They took him back to his village, beheaded him, his brothers, and his cousins. Uh, they have a bullseye on their back. They're being hunted down as we speak, and the White House is doing nothing about it. They just don't care. I, I just don't get it. This is the one Trump policy. They don't they feel powerless to reverse. Are we buying that? Yeah. In fact, when I was early in Congress, I uh, created uh, a special visa immigrant program for those um, indigenous people, particularly in Iraq, but also in, Gap in Afghanistan, who stood by our soldiers, who risked their own life, whose families are still uh, at risk to be able to uh, come to America and rebuild. Um, it's it's only fair that we provide that we provide that type of support to them. Um, it's only fair. I know that's delicate and nuanced and difficult to hear, but it, it it's only fair. At the same time, though, not abandoning the situation completely, not hollowing out expertise in people who actually do have military capacity there and giving them the support they need while continuing some step down, gradual pullback, is the best answer. Congressman Jeff Fortin, yeah, Fortenberry is here. Congressman, lastly, there's an infrastructure bill that's bipartisan. It's about a trillion dollars, 560 billion new dollars, and then repurposing pandemic money. 
uh, they could get back to the House uh, that was put forward to the Senate. Of course, they got to vote it through the Senate. Is that something that you would support as you understand it? Well, this is floating all over the place, Brian. Um, and the, the early part of this negotiation had infrastructure being defined as, as child care. Look, when you talk about infrastructure and you mean real projects on the ground, uh, roads, bridges, uh, airports, things that help with commerce and economic vitality and people's well-being, people will pay tax money for that. You see it on a local basis when you actually have a bond issue and you want to build something specific. People will vote an increase of taxes for that. But when you expand the definition of infrastructure to include every conceivable ideological thing that you want to concentrate into the hands of the federal government, that undermines the ability to be bipartisan in the first place. And that's where we're at. Um, so a good, solid, uh, working infrastructure bill has a possibility uh, of getting through Congress, and we should, we should pass something through like that. But if it's loaded up or used as leverage for a reconciliation package that would push through, again, the ideological agenda of the administration with no bipartisan support, we can't be used like that. Uh, I hear you. And we'll see what comes back across. And the other big issue, of course, is crime in America. I don't really think it's overrunning Nebraska, but it is run overrunning major uh, cities in this country. And I think the, the Democrats are beginning to realize the American people are outraged by what they're seeing. Instead of police reform, this thing has reversed. Do you, do you agree? Completely. Look, the first principle of government is to keep you safe, protect your life. And I, I, I understand in California, if you steal less than $1,000, you're not going to be uh, arrested. You're not going to be pursued. Well, you know, men, persons aren't angels. There's a reason that we have law. You want people to choose the right thing for moral reasons because they're acting in virtue for their own good and for their neighbor. But when that doesn't happen, you have to enforce a principle, which is you will respect your neighbor and your neighbor's property. And when you lose that because of some uh, idea that the police have somehow created an environment which is creating crime, this is a result. It's completely twisted logic. Look, in Nebraska, uh, I used to be on the city council here in Lincoln, and we uh, reinforced and backed up the movement toward community-based policing. The police officer is in dialogue and relationship with the people that he or she serves. Uh, she or he is an intermediary when there's a crisis problem, but also has enforcement capability when something goes wrong. I was shocked, frankly, after the George Floyd's death, that many police departments don't have this model. It's the right way to move forward, but you cannot leave enforcement off the table. Ultimately, that is the necessary tool to keep persons who are doing bad things in line. And you're seeing this crisis play out in California. I, I'm sure you saw that video where the guy rides yep. the bike into the Walgreens and just steals stuff. Yep. And the security guard, all he can do is videotape him. Then yesterday in some store, people are running in and out of, with purses. I mean, that doesn't happen in Nebraska, thankfully, but we have a good, solid police force. Yes, yeah, you do. A good citizenry, yes, who want to be in dialogue with police officers. But if something goes wrong, they will enforce the law. Period. In San Francisco, in San Francisco, you could, uh, you could steal up to nine hundred fifty dollars uh, worth of merchandise without them pressing charges, and they're told not to pursue it. It's a joke. Congressman Jeff Fortenberry, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thank you, Brian. You got it. One eight six six four zero eight seven six six nine. Coming to you on a need-to-know basis, because man, do you need to know? You're with Brian Kilmeade. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. 
If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Hey, welcome back, everyone. Got a couple of minutes. Let's find out if there's more to know. More to know. Sponsored by Oxford Gold Group. Call today to learn how you can protect your retirement and savings account. 833-600-GOLD. That's 833-600-GOLD. I don't know what's happening in Japan, but the Tokyo Olympics will happen, but they are now banning spectators. And now they have a COVID state of emergency. I thought they were the ones who had this down. Remember, they had so few cases. Yeah, right. They were able to control the spread, but I guess they can't get people vaccinated. All right. Uh, the heavy restrictions come in with it will be in place at least till August uh, 22nd. Olympics start on the 23rd to August 8th. Amazing. We should just flood the area with a vaccine, right? Could be. I feel like, though, how is this thing going to, like the Olympics, right? We're going to be waiting to watch some great competition and be like, oh, the person tested positive. They're not going to be able to compete. Uh, That's true, too. I never thought about that. Next, the NBA commissioner, uh, Adam Silver, spoke about his relationship with China. Cut 49. It's hard to divorce what's happening with the NBA from larger geopolitical issues, you know, between the U.S. and China. It certainly doesn't mean that we are blessing everything that happens in China by any means. Um, and we are at root an American company. Yeah, I, I don't know if the NBA can help. Do you? Yeah, they probably not. They're not, and they're not going to have the um, courage to do so. At least they didn't say what Nike said. Nike said, we're a, ja- we're a Chinese company. I mean, That's that was the unbelievable. Worst thing you can say. Next, Jamel Hill. Remember, she left ESPN. She calls Trey Ra- Travis. An idiot. Listen to this. They let a false narrative persist about our show that um, people just kind of ran away with. They let the idiots in the room control the conversation. People like Clay Travis. That's what happened. And because they allowed those people to direct their course of action, they panicked. And suddenly they were very intentional about the things that they were doing in our show. They. Uh, she got canceled, said a lot of radical things. ESPN made a change. She seems to be doing fine. Why is Clay Travis an idiot, though? Why um, was his fault? Good question. I was going to say, he's, you know, going nowhere career-wise anyway. Right. Yeah, Clay right, Travis yeah. doing great. Took over Rush Limbaugh's show and everything. Um, Allison, we should get Clay on to respond to this. How about that? I would love that. I think you can do it. We could I, probably do I that. think he's contractually obligated to say yes at some point. That's true. He does work for Fox now. Oh, that's true. Hey, uh, thanks so much for listening. Keep it here. Brian Kilmeade Show. Go to briankilmeade.com or to any of my books. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of the story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox & Friends, it's America's receptive voice. Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade coming to you on the Brian Kilmeade Show from New York, heard around the country, heard around the world. Uh, one of the farest, current, farest, current, finest correspondents in the country will be joining us shortly, Fox News senior uh, security correspondent Jennifer Griffin and Sandra Smith at the bottom of the hour as she gets set to host her show, America Reports, with John Roberts. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Bagram feels vulnerable. There are also thousands of Taliban prisoners inside. And now that the Americans are gone, the power is cut, and base defenses are disrupted, if the Taliban were able to break them out, it would amass a huge fighting force right on the doorstep of Kabul. And that could easily happen. I hope someone understands that. 
We'll discuss it. Disaster for all to see. The Afghanistan drawdown is turning into a Taliban handover, making America look like a disloyal ally, to say the least. President Biden blames President Trump. Uh, and for once, the press does not accept it. Why is President Biden allow, uh, willing to lose hard-earned influence and real estate in this region? Number two. When we're seeing historic levels of violence, dear God, there's got to be a sense of urgency at the federal level. What more is it going to take? And yet, we see people in Congress sitting on their hands and not doing anything. Will she look in the mirror, please, Mayor Lori Lightfoot? Crime catastrophe in America, and the Biden administration knows and knows the polls prove it. The problem is his solution, sanctioning guns, not the shooters. Number one. There are legislators, mostly from the Republican Party, who are currently bullying teachers and trying to stop us from teaching kids honest history. Maybe they're just trying to raise the temperature on race relations because of the next election. Cop out. Educating America, the American way, an impossible concept for the woke left and the teachers, teachers union president as she and they double down on CRT. This is a fight many on the right want to have and must have and must win. So one of the big stories is uh, taking place uh, overseas. People are tired of the Afghanistan war, but I have news for you. Uh, it's not okay to be tired of a war. That So for the most part, has not been a hot war for years. Only lost a handful of guys, which is sad, even lose one, but was more in domestic accidents than we had in Afghanistan. But the way we're drawing down, handing it over to Islamic extremists, giving us a loss and giving the perception that we quit is going to be something that's going to be felt for years. Jennifer Griffin joins us now. Jennifer, how bad is this drawdown? Well, I think what is shocking, Brian, and even shocking some of the military planners here in the Pentagon, is just how quickly the Taliban are taking over the country. Uh, there was an internal intelligence report suggesting that it would take about six months. Uh, the public testimony on the Capitol Hill from the defense secretary and chairman of the Joint Chiefs said they thought al-Qaeda and the Taliban would be back within two years. That, to me, sounded like a short timeline. But we are talking uh, uh, the the gains being made by the Taliban. Every day we're hearing about new district capitals. Uh, they're making moves on certain provincial capitals, particularly in the north of the country. And now we're hearing out near Herat in the west uh, that they're making gains. So a very, very uh, – the, the momentum is on the side of the Taliban. Uh, if history is uh, – you know, has, has – if there's anything we can learn from history, if you go back to the Soviet Soviet period and the time when it, it descended into civil war after the Soviets pulled out. It then took about three years uh, of fighting in the capital uh, before that government was overthrown. And often what happens is the, the, you know, the Taliban will be able to take the countryside and the ring area around the capital. Uh, it will be much harder and maybe impossible for them to take the capital, but it will become a dysfunctional country and it will fall into civil war. And frankly, this is this, I think anyone who has known Afghanistan, watched Afghanistan over the years, this was an unforced error. It was a decision by President Biden, and we've since learned that none of his national security team advised him to take those 2,500 U.S. troops out that were kind of just holding the place together. They've lost intelligence bases. They've lost drone bases in the region, and it is um, 
it's really hard to understand the strategic thinking behind this. So it's, it's, I 100% agree with you, and I think people have a false narrative. They want to say, well, we're, not, we're tired of rebuilding the country. What, what are you talking about? That Nobody, has nothing to nobody's do with been, it. Nobody's been rebuilding the country for some time. Now, if you want to talk history, and it's a long history in Afghanistan, it's certainly uh, 20 years of war, uh, which we would be coming up upon this year with the anniversary of 9-11 and the, and the months that followed, uh, you, you can look at the arc of that in 20 years as a shockingly long, you know, it is a long time to be in a country like Afghanistan. But in terms of the investment at this moment in time, and there were mistakes made along the way. I mean, you could go back and argue that when uh, when U.S. forces and military, um, not only personnel, but also resources were siphoned off for the Iraq war, that that was a key moment. There were many key moments that that uh, where where you know mistakes were made. There was a period where the U.S. attempted nation building there, and that was a disaster. It has been very expensive, you know, a trillion dollars over the last two decades. Uh, that that it's very hard to see. Other than, I mean, girls going to school—that is a very real thing. Women coming out of their homes and not feeling uh, fearing their lives the way they did under Taliban rule. This is all about to be lost. But most importantly, even if you want to think of it from a real politique perspective, to lose your eyes and ears in a country that is surrounded by China, nuclear Pakistan, and Iran, those are its neighbors, why would you lose an intelligence-gathering operation um, with 2,500 U.S. troops? And as you said, there had not been, um, you know, a large loss of life in recent years because— Again, they had gone back to the bases. They were working with Taliban partners to, I mean, excuse me, with Afghan partners to keep an eye on the Taliban and Al Qaeda and other, and ISIS. Let's talk about ISIS. What, what's so frustrating is that this is exactly what we saw happen in 2011 in Iraq. And, and, and you know, ex- Middle East experts and military planners always try to say, oh, Afghanistan and Iraq are different. Well, it sure feels awfully similar to what we saw and what we were predicting in 2011 uh, when the U.S. pulled out of Iraq. And let's not forget that that Joe Biden was in charge of that as well, oversaw that. I just don't understand why he wouldn't see the similarities and why uh, he would have taken this decision to to pull out completely. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, but remember, Joe Biden was wrong about every single national security uh, decision over the last uh, through Bob Gates, his entire career. And he said that not knowing Joe Biden was going to run for president. He said that when he was vice president. And we know his instincts have always been terrible even though he was chairman of foreign relations. So Donald Trump teed it up for him. I thought for him to say endless war pullout uh, was reckless, and it showed he wasn't looking at the region the way you just said it. Look at where we're located. Look at understand what we're benefiting from being there. Also, NATO had a presence there. They were not even given a heads up that we were pulling out by 9-11. Yeah. No, it, it, I, and the thing that I'd like to point to today, which is a story we're, we're covering, is the impact that it's having in Iraq. Um, notice that in the, the, the message that's being sent to Iranian-backed proxies in Iraq is that the U.S. is ready to roll up and, and, and head home, and that if we just put enough pressure on the troops— 
And so we've seen in the last 24 hours three attacks on U.S. bases and uh, the embassy in in Iraq. So this has a spillover effect. It in, inspires and, and sends signals to groups that are trying to push U.S. forces out of the Middle East. And remember, it's, there's, a, there's a bit of a myth that U.S. forces are coming home and that the wars are ending. They're just regrouping in other bases. So the troops that are leaving Afghanistan and the, the military hardware and the drones – they're now based in the United Arab Emirates. They're going to just have to fly a lot farther and have, you know, it takes, you know, however many hours, six hours of flying to have three hours on base in Afghanistan, then fly back to UAE. Very inefficient use of resources. Uh, again, the U.S. is still heavily involved in the Middle East, 40,000 troops across the Middle East. It, it's just, um, it is a symbol that, I can understand the, the, where the feeling came from in terms of wanting to end the war in Afghanistan. However, this, um, this is going to have unintended consequences. And, and it also is going to – and we should talk about this. The U.S. Uh, had a, a leadership role to play there, and there will, be, um, there will be a humanitarian disaster after this. And people can wash, say you can wash your hands of it, but – I don't think you can. And it's just like Syria. I remember the argument at the time of not getting involved in the Syrian civil war that, you know, that it wasn't our responsibility. And but that was a, a genocide, if you will, that that the U.S. had the ability to step in and and to to stop. And I, I just maybe not stop, but at least slow down. And, and the U.S. was kind of holding things together there in Afghanistan with just twenty five hundred troops. Absolutely. It was an unforced error. I 100 percent agree. Uh, nobody was talking about an endless war. It wasn't a pitch battle. It wasn't a hot war. The other thing to keep in mind, too, is we actually did get involved in the Syrian situation. We did work with the Kurds on the ground and we did it with a small contingent of special operators. And uh, and, later, and we had a lot after, of success. After there had already been I know. genocide. No, I mean, I, there, that, that was that was, you know, the U.S. watched from the sidelines. It this was this this is going to be a disaster for the people of Afghanistan but even if you want to think about it from the US perspective it is a loss in terms of uh, a strategic interest and so talking about a forever war was a really unfortunate uh choice of words because this was a you know that's like suggesting that we shouldn't have bases anywhere in the world if you really believe that then you don't understand what our strategic interests or the ability to project power and, overseas and, Jennifer, and why you know we you have need? a U.S. military. Right. And what you need just today, I understand President Biden's going to speak about Afghanistan. He had the ridiculous comment on the July 3rd saying, hey, guys, I want happy questions. It's uh, yeah. the holiday weekend. How dare you? He understands what it's like in the war. Do you think they're celebrating holidays in Afghanistan? We have 9,000 friends. I think what's particularly insulting, um, Brian, about the way this this ended is the war ended last Friday when General Scott Miller, the top commander, U.S. commander in Afghanistan, left the country. And the night before that, remember, Fox News broke the news. Uh, we broke the news that Bagram Air, Play, that Air Base, that all U.S. troops were out of there. Once those markers had been passed, there, in essence, there are U.S. troops – 
uh, protecting the international airport, very small number, a uh, few hundred, uh, working with the Turks there, NATO ally Turks. And there are uh, about, you know, 500 to 600 uh, U.S. troops protecting the U.S. embassy. That's it. The war is over. The U.S. is out of Afghanistan. Whether they wanted to call it or not, people didn't like, I think the White House didn't like the symbolism of ending the war on July 4th, Independence Day weekend. It didn't look good. And so now they're, they're slow rolling this and saying that they'll, the, they'll be out by the end of August. They also don't have a plan, as you were about to mention, for the Afghan translators who they had made promises to, visas. They, they are scrambling to come up with uh, plans to try and help those translators who are facing death threats from the Taliban. But this should have been thought through before you start moving out. And now it's a little... Uh, it's a little late, and they're they're kind of slowing the announcement of the end, but it's basically over, and it was over last Friday. It must be really frustrating to you who's on this on a daily basis for the last 20 years. It's not a distant conflict to you. Uh, Jennifer, a couple other things to keep in mind. Uh, President Biden's going to speak today about this. Do you have any idea what he's going to say? I think you're going to hear him talk about the financial commitment that the U.S. is willing to make to Afghanistan and the government of Afghanistan. Afghanistan and how the U.S. is not leaving Afghanistan, that it will remain a friend and partner. But these are these are empty words at this moment in terms of um, the way in which even the U.S. forces had to leave uh, Bagram. We've heard the interviews as much as the Pentagon would like to push back on the narrative. Uh, we've heard the interviews with local Afghan uh, uh, commanders who said, you know, we just woke up and they were gone. The lights were out. It was um, and and that they were surprised that they kind of left in the middle of the night. Uh, couldn't be more disappointing. You could easily have educated the American people and say, listen, I know some of you are fatigued by this war, but let me understand how it's in America's best interest to continue the role we're playing. And you go ahead and explain that and you let the American people catch up and understand it. We would have done it. And the thing is, yeah, it's a huge commitment. We could have gradually decreased that commitment if we had some type of plan without building the nation. We actually have a, in Gahani, we have somebody we can work with. It's not Karzai, ungrateful and unstable. This guy came over last Friday and he he had meetings with our generals, like General Keene and others. And then he sits down with the President of the United States. This guy could leave and become a professor in America tomorrow. He wants to live in that rubble. Uh, and find a way to help the people of Afghanistan. And we just uh, we had somebody we could work with, and it just didn't matter. Final thought? My final thought is that this was set in motion um, uh, a few, you know, six months ago, back in the December time frame. President Trump wanted to end the war. He indicated when when prior to that, the year basically starting in around. Uh, January of 2020, when he authorized the negotiations with the Taliban to end the war. Those negotiations were not going well. They did not, in, the U.S. Uh, negotiators did not include the Afghan government uh, in Kabul in those negotiations. Things went belly up, and the Taliban knew from successive presidents going back four presidents, they knew that the Americans wanted to get out, and the Taliban always knew they could wait us out. Uh, they've waited, and now they're on the move. It's always true. Nothing, uh, nothing to dispute there. Uh, Jennifer Griffin, thanks so much. Thanks, Brian. All right, one eight six six four zero eight seven six six nine. Don't move. Giving you everything you need to know. It's Brian Kilmeade. 
Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, 1-866-408-7669. Let me, uh, let me just get to the phones right now. John, you're listening to WLAD in Danbury, Connecticut. Hey, John. Yes, hey. What's on your mind? Yeah, my question was, if this was a European, if uh, Afghanistan was a European nation, would the American people and all of our presidents have an issue with nation building? Because after World War II, no one ran out of Germany and Italy and all the other European nations. Well, what you had was a compliant population, though. You don't have necessarily a compliant population here. We're not even talking about that. I'm just talking about strategic advantage for for America. Now in comes China, who the Taliban has a read. They were totally isolated last time they were in power. They had only Saddam Hussein recognize them. Now China says, okay, you tell you what, I'll recognize you guys, and I'll take your rare earth. I'll share a small percentage of you. And all of a sudden, America's influence, our prestige, and our actual strategic advantage all gone. Let's go to uh, let's go to Terry listening on FM News Talk 97.1. Terry. Hi. I have a, a quick comment and then a question. My comment is, uh, in the Civil War, there were 2 million men who fought for the North. I would say the bulk of which were white men. And I'd say about three to 400,000 of them died to free uh, black people in the South who didn't really affect their livelihoods, I don't think, one way or the other. Is that part of the critical race theory? No, uh, it's no. It's only they're not going to say that. That's called a balanced look at history. We don't want that. Uh, We act like this is the war against northern aggression. That's what the South called it early on, but it wasn't. It was a civil war. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on The Brian Kilmeade Show. This is not complicated. We're not asking anybody to make any political statement one way or another. We're saying try and save your life and that of your family, and that of the community. Here we have a vaccine that's highly, highly effective. It's easy to get, it's free, and it's readily available. So, you know, you've got to ask, what is the problem? Get over it. Get over this political statement. Just get over it and try and save the lives of yourself and your family. Anthony Fauci, what is he doing? Uh, you, the, If you actually think politics is involved with people not taking it, and let's say you thoroughly believe that, if you actually believe it, then the first thing you will say is, my attention, Trump supporters, if you are not doing this because Joe Biden's president, it was Operation Warp Speed under the previous president that you likely voted for, you one of the 75 million that put this together, that over a million shots in arms was happening 
before Donald Trump left office. If you really think it's pure politics, Sandra Smith is here. Can't accept to host her show. America Reports are from 1 to 3 today. Sandra, welcome back. Hi, Brian. Thanks for having me. So would you, I was shocked to hear him say, get over it. Get it's over. politics. Is that really his job? Get over it? Even though I had already heard that, hearing it again, it made me think, why? Why does he go there? His job could have been this entire time to simply relay the facts, what he knows, makes obviously advise on what is best to get us through this pandemic. But it seems to me that's more of a political statement than anything. And Brian, I think this goes to the the root of the biggest concern, mainly coming from the right, is the slippery slope that may come as a result of the White House saying, we're now going door to door. We're going to ring your doorbell. And if you're not vaccinated, we are going to mandate that you are. Jim Jordan tweeted out today, the Biden administration wants to knock on your uh, knock on your door to see if you're vaccinated. What's next? Knocking your door to see if you own a gun. You know, it's just another reason people are worried about the government just completely taking over our lives. Reasonable concern when you hear Dr. Fauci, who has been an authority through this pandemic, say, get over it. I think that Rubs a lot of people the wrong way. So the door-to-door concept, you think they'd back off of. Everyone was kind of offended by that. It seemed mostly Republicans, but they've doubled down yesterday. Here's Jen Psaki, cut mm-hmm. 32. What we're trying to do here as the federal government is protect the American people and save lives, prevent people from getting COVID and the coronavirus. It's up to every individual to decide whether they're going to get vaccinated. But especially as we're seeing reports from the CDC about the rise of the Delta variant, one of the most transmissible variants we've seen there, this is about protecting people and saving lives. That's a role we're going to continue to play from the federal government and use any of the tools and tactics that we think will be effective. So uh, it's about saving lives. It's their charge. So I shouldn't go cliff diving. I shouldn't go deep sea fishing. Sure, what else shouldn't I do? I, should I should I not play rugby because I could break my nose? What else does the government not think I should be doing? I think the translation from Saki there is we know better than you. But to be sure, the White House has so far rejected calls to mandate the national vaccine passport. Right, Brian? They have also said that they're going to leave it up to companies and schools, whether or not they're going to require vaccines. I don't know if you're impressed by that or if that shocks you at all, but that is the case so far. Uh, It is up to the commander in chief to decide whether or not they will mandate this for uh, members of the military. But more than 500, I'm looking out to the fall because obviously you saw a lot of the headlines in the various papers this morning about the return of the indoor mask mandate in so many areas. What's going to happen when schools reopen in the fall? I asked our brain firm for some data this morning. More than 570 colleges have already announced that vaccines will be mandatory for fall attendance. And when you've got headlines about these variants happening all over the world and Japan going uh, into emergency mode now because of COVID cases and all that, what is the fall going to look like? Are we going to return to masks on all the kids K through 12 in our classrooms? I mean, (laughs) we're already weeks away uh, from some of these schools starting back up in the fall. I know it's unbelievable. And that's another thing I want to discuss with you is what's happening at the CRT and what Randy Weingarten was saying but uh, I'll back up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, my daughters, too, are going to be going. One's going to be going to college. The other one is in college. They were both told it's a private school, need vaccine to get on campus. Mm-hmm. So they did it. Uh, and one's 17, one's 19. So uh, now 20, my bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, 18, 20. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to okay. get in Oops. trouble. Yeah. <laughs> My, that's one bad thing about being on 77 <laughs> WABC. They can hear us in New York. Uh, so they're, they're um, 18 and 20. 
But I want you to hear another story. So I'm, I'm, you're big into the track community, sure. and uh, I'm with soccer. And one of the players that played with my brother has a son that was going to college this year. And his one son got the shot, no problem. His other son got the shot, and he still can't recover from it. Listen to what he told us. He uh, was uh, required to get the uh, vaccine for, for schools. So I never thought anything of it. You know, I, everything is low risk. Everybody said it's fine. And then a week later, uh, I came home, and he started uh, telling me that his heart was hurting him. Next thing I know, next day, my, I get a call. like, uh, this bad news. He needs to go to the hospital. His, his troponin levels were off the chart. Uh, what they told me was normal was like 40. He had like 9,000. He's had a heart condition, uh, and he can't, you know, he can't do all the things he loves to do. He can't hang out with his friends and do, uh, you know, things that 17-year-olds do. And the biggest part, he can't play soccer in the fall, which broke his heart and my heart. Microcarditis. So he had inflammation of the heart. And as he went home, he said, I'm not recovering. He goes, how do you feel? He goes, every time my heart beat, it hurts. So they had to bring him to the hospital, and he still can't recover. He can't break a sweat. He can't exert himself. How do you tell a 17-year-old not to even – that's walking upstairs. So this went from an elite athlete, college soccer player, to this. And and the dad feels guilty. And I I say this, Sandra. Instead of being a doctor and a politician, why not say, listen, I understand there are some cases out there of myocarditis that are Mm -hmm. popping up for teens. We're going to look into that. Part of it could be – my humble opinion, is that the kid had antibodies already. The whole family had it. So if you have antibodies, why isn't that part of this conversation? Save the money on shots. Give it to Nigeria or Somalia or or uh, Uganda or Norway. They need it. Japan needs it. And then you say, along with the COVID-19, it's so easy to get the COVID-19 uh, test, right? Yep. Anyone can get yep. it. So why just get the antibody test. Uh, uh, excuse me, Sandra, you had it. Uh, you still have the antibodies. I'm going to say six months, come back again, see if you still have it. Yep. Then we might have a problem with a, a certain bodies, certain metabolisms saying, I already have the antibodies. You just shot them into me again. Yeah. I got a problem with the mRNA or how Johnson & Johnson, when you actually shoot the antibodies in, how they factor in with the antibodies that they're already. So maybe that's the case. Do you give someone with polio the polio vaccine? Yeah. Who it, had it? It already. just doesn't feel like they're taking that into consideration. Kids are our priority. I think there's individual cases. It seems like there's a blanket statement: everybody get vaccinated before you return to school. The Fox poll also surprised me. Fifty-one percent of voters say employers should be able to mandate the vaccine. That was a majority of the respondents. So people want to feel safe when they go back to work, but that's not that age group. Forty-four percent of voters say businesses should require proof of vaccine. 49% say they should not. I know you just showed me your barcode. I think that's going to be fascinating as we all cram back in these spaces. Concerts are happening. But schools in the fall, I think, is the big question mark. And that's that's terribly sad when you hear a case like that. So the Brian. market's down 200. It was down more than that, but 275 points right now, right? And so they, it was they, down 500 earlier. You're the business expert. But when I was here, I was trying to find out what the reason was. And they were saying it was the Delta variant. And I said, is that for real? The Delta variant ticking up numbers. Deaths are still way down, ticking up numbers slightly. But the Delta variant's handled by the vaccine. Sandra, we're making decisions. It's not up to me to, for you to get a vaccine or me to get a vaccine. I'm not going to get you sick. You're not going to get me sick. It's infinitesimal chances of me getting sick. So it doesn't matter if somebody next to you is vaccinated or not. If the numbers go up, it's the numbers go up. If someone drinks and drives, it's a bad decision. But I can't control them. I can't control if they get high and drive. I, you know, I, it's not up to me. As soon as anyone could get the vaccine, this game changed. 
and I think he should continue to do the PSAs and, and push it forward. But I also go back to what Victor David Hansen said. One of the reasons he keeps talking about it, it's his only good news story. Mm. Uh, I think so, but he, I mean, he missed the dead, he missed his self-imposed Barely, deadline, though, right? That was still like making I think it. that's still an absolutely, step back and think about that. I mean, nearly 70% of the population got a vaccination. Yeah. I mean, that's a really, really big deal. When it comes to the markets, I think the variants are a concern, but the variants have been an issue for a while, so I don't know that that would be the one-day spook for these markets. What do you think it but is? But the market's sitting at all-time highs, record highs, despite the fact that we still are not done with this pandemic. It's not over. You still got, you know, spots, hot spots happening all over the world. Japan going into emergency mode. No, no fans at the Olympics. Um, this is a this is a system that has had an immense amount of money pumped into it. I mean, the amount of stimulus that is out there, Brian, when we still can't get people to go fill 9 million open jobs out there, people are getting checks. They're sitting on a lot of cash yeah. and savings from the pandemic. Uh, I, I heard you hear that number 46% have taken their pandemic money and invested it. Absolutely. Are you kidding? You're taking money that we borrowed. Meme stocks, Bitcoin. It. Yeah. So that's a real thing. And do you think this is part of I mean, no one talks about inflation. If I was him, I wouldn't. I, do. I would actually talk about inflation. You do. Uh, do you talk about common goods that are affected? You know, my my daughter's starting to drive. And the first thing she said to me, I can't believe how expensive gas got. I'm like, wow, it's up a dollar. So if, nice she, of her to notice. if a 19, 20 year old, 20 year old uh, is picking that up. <laughs> if a 20 year old is picking that up. Can you imagine the family who's living uh, yeah. paycheck to paycheck? Now, all of a sudden, housing's up 12%, used cars are up 30%, general transportation up 11%, clothing up 5.6%, food up 2%, let alone lumber. Try building uh, a house right now, yeah, yeah. And gas is up. Last year at this time, um, premium was 278 now it's 374 So it's a full dollar. Yeah. It makes a difference. What good is wage growth if that money is going directly back into your payment at Walmart or Costco or wherever you're going to feed your family or clothe your family? Housing uh, prices are at record highs. Sales are still up. Um, Brian, the price of absolutely everything has gone up. But the White House is in denial about the inflation story, and I'm not quite sure why that is. And the markets have been in denial of the inflation story. So your daughter notices the price of gas going sky high, but yet the markets don't seem to care. It seems, and I had an economist tell me this recently, that the markets have bought the Fed's transitory comment, hook, line, and sinker, that this inflation story is not here to stay and that that will eventually go away. But then you get a day like today where the markets are spooked, the Dow is down 500 points a few minutes ago. I think people start to question like, are there is there enough really good fundamentals to render the record high prices that we're seeing in the Dow, the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq? And what really would be the catalyst for a turnaround in that market? And I I do believe inflation is the next big deal. And if you can't get people to go back to work, can we afford to continue to cut the checks that we are that is stimulating that market and this U.S. economy? Well, the other thing, there's two things that you just uh, brought up that I think is worthy of emphasizing. We're going to put another trillion dollars. Mm-hmm. If a bipartisan bill goes through another trillion dollars, $560 billion, which will be new money, mm-hmm. into our economy, a bipartisan passing. And then they're going to jam a reconciliation bill of up to $4 trillion down our throats mm-hmm. while states scramble to spend $330 billion of pandemic money before it's taken back or done yeah. something. So it's, if you think inflation's a problem now, 
Do the math. It's only going to get worse. Money we don't have. We're $33 trillion in debt, so we're over budget every month, and we're putting more in for an emergency that we're not in anymore. Yeah, and the, and the Fed has shown no signs of raising interest rates. So we're still in this free money environment while we have this record-breaking stock market and this hot economy. I go back to Larry Summers, worked under the Obama administration. Uh, he's usually a left-wing economist. He stepped in and saying, isn't that the job of the Fed to take away the punch bowl before the party gets out of control? And that is what I believe the market's fear has happened or is happening when right When we now. come back... No one's talking about this, and even Joe Biden's frustrated they're not. He is touting a tax credit, giving poorer families $3,000 in cash for every kid under 17. It starts in July. So anybody that has, let's say, three kids, you're now getting getting $9,000 extra a month that we don't have. Not saying it's going to come out in your taxes. You're getting these checks on top of the pandemic checks. Wow. He's like, you don't know what's coming your way because it's going to raise people from poverty to middle class. On deficit spending. And he says, I want to expand that to 2024. How can we afford this? It's not sustainable. Right. And then there's incentive now to have more kids. I need more money. That scares me. Back in a moment. Educating. Entertaining. Enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. We're all concerned about the security situation on the ground. Neil, there's no question about that, which is all the more reason why we continue to push for a negotiated, peaceful political settlement to this war. That's really the way forward here. We've said for a long time uh, a military solution is not going to be in the best interest of the Afghan people uh, or, or, quite frankly, the region. We're still pushing. We still believe in the security situation I think augurs for and argues for. It is terrible. It's an embarrassment what's happening. Sandra Smith is here. She's going to set to host her show one and three between one and three today on Fox News Channel. Uh, Sandra, this is the the worst dismount in my lifetime. This is going to be Saigon, too. They say the the government could fall in six months. Right now, it looks like less. Uh, I think that that's fair. Uh, We'll see what President Biden says this afternoon during our hours. He's expected to make remarks on the continued drawdown efforts in Afghanistan. I believe it starts at 145 uh, p.m. Eastern time. We'll see what he has to say. Uh, Rep. Nancy Mace is going to be joining me top of the show on the Afghan withdrawal. Um, obviously, Biden administration under fire for the timing of all of this. Um, what's going to fill the void in Afghanistan? That's my question to her and all the military chiefs that we've got on this afternoon. Uh, and will the Taliban soon be back in power? We've seen in recent days what has been happening, recent weeks what has been happening. Um, I don't know if we get any more clarity from President Biden. I don't know what your expectations are this afternoon. Depends on what they put on his court. I, and obviously, a point taken. Um but he's got to be getting some serious intelligence to give him some clue as to how this is going. And I do expect we'll get some sort of briefing on that. Jennifer but. Griffin just told us, yep. top of the hour, said nobody advised him to get out this way. He did it himself. And those great instincts that had Bob Gates say he's been wrong on every national security mm. issue through his entire lifetime, we, we are, we're suffering through that now. The former chairman of foreign relations, he is the one who said, pull him out, get him out. It didn't even tell NATO ahead of time. Yeah disaster in the making yeah i mean to me there's just no question about it listen um i want to find out what's on your show you mentioned nancy mace Mm -hmm. you mentioned you're going to take uh, you're going to take the crt and crime um critical race theory in our schools major major problem happening across the nation uh so we'll talk to nancy mace about that as well 
crime. What is happening in my beloved Chicago? It's so scary. New York, Chicago, L.A., Seattle, Portland. I mean, this country is a mess. Our great American cities are being torn apart by this defund the police movement. Uh, The record low morale rates among our police force, Brian, I think it is sad. It is scary because the number one thing we all ask ourselves as we live our lives in this great country is do I feel safe walking down the street? And for so many of us, the answer is no to that right now. Right. And guess what? The whole uh, it was the Republicans who wanted to fund the police. They got three Pinocchios in today's Washington yep. Post. And we all know it should get 27 because the Republicans on their worst day with their most moderate member would never say defund the police or because they didn't vote for the $1.9 trillion pandemic package. Mm. They say that is the reason because some of that money could be used to fund additional police resources. It's got to get better. It's got to get better. We have to support our police. We've got to get, get, we've got to fund the police. Get these cities going again. We do. Ha! Sandra Smith and Brian Kilmeade support Brian. the police. We're going to watch it between one and three today, yep. Sandra. Thanks so much for right. coming in. Thank you. I'm going to put this on YouTube and see how it does. <laughs> thanks. All right. Uh, thanks so much for listening, everybody. Don't move. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.